You're listening to an Art Gallery of Ontario podcast. AGO Talks are recorded live in the gallery and feature artists, writers, and curators exploring how art shapes and inspires us. Please visit us online at ago.net slash talks. Good evening and welcome. My name is Gillian McIntyre and I coordinate the adult public programs here. And I am thrilled this evening to present to introduce the first in our series of the, heart, the Art of Healing. We have been talking, um, people from the hospitals and, and the gallery, about the intersections between medicine and the arts. Um, I'm very curious who you all are. Could, just show me by hand how many of you are from the medical community. How many of you? Okay, medical community. All right, art community. Something else. <laughs> okay, and both. All right, that's wonderful. It's really interesting. I love, you know, audiences like this. So the art of healing, artists and medical practitioners in duet. And tonight we have Susan Abbey and Deirdre Logue in conversation, moderated by Alan Peterkin. And we're presenting this in partnership with the Wilson Center, the Arts, Health and Humanities Program, and the Faculty of Medicine at the University of Toronto. So we're going to have some conversations, some presentations, some film, and then we really hope to have an active discussion with all of you. So I'm going to introduce Alan Peterkin first. Alan Peterkin is an Associate Professor of Psychiatry and Family Medicine at the University of Toronto, where he heads the program in Health, Arts and Humanities. He's the founding editor of the literary magazine Ars Medica, and the author of 10 books, including a picture book, the Flyaway Blanket, to be published next week. So, Alan. Thank you very much, Gillian. And I wanted to say what a pleasure it's been uh, to work with Gillian and her colleagues here at the AGO. So those of us, you know, working and teaching on Hospital Row, uh, that would include people from the Wilson Center and Toronto General and Mount Sinai, where I work, we're very interested in engaging uh, in a discussion around the visual arts. And we turn to our neighbor, the AGO, and there's been this really wonderful collaboration that's, that's begun. Uh, so this is the first of a series looking at that intersection between healing and the arts. Uh, in February, we'll be dealing with uh, the theme of plagues and epidemics. So we hope that you'll, you'll stay tuned um, and, and attend that one as well. So let me introduce my, my colleague, Susan Abbey. And um, each of our presenters this evening has provided um, their own bios. Uh, so Dr. Susan Abbey specializes in psychiatry concentrated on the interface of mind and body with a particular focus on depression, quality of life, and stress management with the medically ill and transplant patients and families. And I should add, even though it's not in her official bio, that she's a beloved teacher. She's, she's one of our uh, preferred teachers in, in psychiatry, both for our residents and, and students. So she'll be speaking first about, about her work. And again, bios don't tell us a whole lot. So maybe you can tell us a, something about the focus of your life's work right, right now. So I, f I find this all very daunting. Um, I thought maybe I needed a, I don't know, a gin and tonic or a lorazepam before I started. Um, 
but it, it, it was very interesting. When I first got a, a, a phone call from someone uh, from the Wilson Center looking at this, there was a talk about that we would be primarily looking at the issue of mindfulness. And I'm very committed to that and do a lot of work in that area. And then as we've talked and it's grown, it's, I think it's looking at much more. And the three of us got together with Jillian last week and I felt very stupid after I left. I started really trying to think about what I had to say. <laughs> but it was, it was very interesting because I think that the other ways that we were intersecting were looking at issues around uh, vision and seeing and around the body and the meaning of the body and how we work with those things. So to set a little bit of context, um, I'm a shrink, uh, so I'm a psychiatrist. Um, the area that I'm interested in is uh, work with people with life-threatening illnesses. So I do a lot of work with um, the transplant program and cardiovascular program and um, find it really exciting to be there at these sort of liminal moments in people's lives um, and to, and I think that's where the mindfulness also comes in of, of really grounding um, myself there. I've had a long interest in mindfulness out of the Vipassana uh, tradition and working at, in teaching that in a clinical context over the last 12 years and again finding that a place of really trying to come into the body, uh, come into the moment and find a way of working both with what is uh, beautiful and joyous and exciting in life and which often we don't see because we are captured by the kind of automaticity of things um, and, and also being able to uh, move in close to what is difficult um, for us and we all have lots that's difficult for us. So I think that I've had those lenses that I bring to bear. I also do a lot of work in, uh, in uh, I'm going to show you one of my, I had to pick images, and I thought found that very daunting, and I'll tell you about that in a minute. Um, but um, I, I do research, uh, in, in, it's very interesting, with um, a philosopher and a critical theorist and a cardiologist <laughs> and myself, so you can imagine the conversations. Uh, and, and then now in our most recent project, a nurse colleague who I uh, adore has come to work with us, and we've been looking at uh, the experience of embodiment and transplant patients. So I think I bring those um, lenses. And then I think the other one that I didn't realize until we were talking last week was really as an educator and a teacher trying to help people to see um, and to be able to, to really sit and see clearly what's happening in front of them. And um, I remember my old art school days of trying to see both positive and negative space, you know, seeing what's there and what's not there and kind of hearing what's there and what's not there. So I think those are the kind of things that sort of resonate for me about tonight. And, and the art of psychiatry really is, in large part, it's not all speaking, it's about observing. And a big part of the mental status exam we do is paying attention to detail and how people are dressed mm. and the expressions on their faces and how they hold their body so that seeing is crucial to, to what we do, isn't yeah. it? And I think I like more than observing, witnessing, mm. of being really sort of present in the moment. So then, Alan, so then we've got these wonderful films from, uh, from Deirdre, but Alan told me that I had to bring images. So then he said, well, you know, pick an image that's been influential. 
And I thought, oh, I can't do this. You know, so I started thinking, well, maybe I'll bring some Monet because when I was trying to decide whether I was going to do psychiatry or medicine, I was, did an elective in England and there was a big exhibit and I kept looking at the, the little waitress at the, you know, the bar at the Follies Bergere and wondering what was going on in her mind and thinking maybe that meant I should do psychiatry. So I was going to bring that. And then, and then I thought, no, I'm going to bring my Inuit art, my birds, because I think there's, I've got all these birds and then people have started to bring me birds. And then I think about them or something about like getting free and flying away. But instead, I decided to bring two images for you. Um, and anybody who's just had dinner can maybe, if you are you know, upset easily. Um, this is an image that uh, has been involved in uh, our research work that we're doing. And on your left, you can see uh, a new heart. That's, well, actually, it's a recycled heart. Um, and on, on uh, your right-hand side is the heart that is being taken out, sort of a big baggy uh, hard and this sort of liminal moment when the surgeon has uh, has managed to resect the diseased heart and is just getting ready to put in the new heart. And so I find that quite a. Turn on the light so we can. Can see it even. It's even better. So I've been. Um, I find that a very striking image, although several people told me you can't show them that it's not art, but um, but I. I I'm really interested in, in what that's all about. And then I was thinking, so if I had to bring some art, uh, who to bring? And I've, as I said, I've loved, I'm a little bit of an image slut, so I like lots of different things. So I was trying to th think of what, but I was sort of thinking, I've been thinking a lot about sort of Andy Goldsworthy and Neil Zuda. So I brought, um, I brought the, the Rowan Leafs, because I, in, in his work, the sort of the presence and the absence, the sort of the leaves and the whole, and, um, and the ephemerality and the, you know, the beauty and yet the, the, the decay to follow, it all just sort of feels like it reverberates with my day job. So that's who I am. Well, thank you. That's a, a great introduction. And maybe I'll flag a couple of points that you raise that we'll touch on in our, in our dialogue, uh, that of mindfulness, but also that of bearing witness that these are very important, I think, notions that we, we can develop in our, in our discussion. And, and now it's my pleasure to uh, introduce Deirdre Logue. Um, her film, video, and installation work focuses on the self as subject and the body as material. Recent solo exhibitions of her award-winning work have taken place at Oakville Galleries, the Images Festival, the Berlin International Film Festival, beyond in Western New York and at Articule, Articule in, in Montreal. She was a founding member, a member of Media City, the executive director of the Images Festival, the executive director of the CF, CFMDC, and is currently the development director at VTape. So Deirdre is going to tell us a bit about her work and then actually show us uh, some of her work as well sitting on my cord. Um, thank you. We went through an interesting process together that included meeting up, and Susan's referred to it, um, to try and kind of find some common ground and to uh, try to trouble these ideas around the body and it, it as material and the self as subject. And, um, so I've been very excited and, and inspired by the conversations that we've been having. I also am a traditional subversive, so I tried to um, 
implicate both Alan uh, and Susan and, and Jillian in the role of uh, selecting some work to show you tonight from a couple of different bodies of work that I have produced over the last 15 or so years. So um, I guess we're going to have to talk about psychiatrist as curator at some point, which I don't know if we'll, we'll get through that or not. But um, what I... I so we're going to show the work that these three folks and myself have selected. Um, I think it would be good, and I have to put on glasses to do this, and I also regret printing this out so small. But um, I'm going to read uh, something from my artist statement, just in the interest of time, so that I can make sure to cover some bases. Um, you're going to see tonight four works uh, from two very different series series of works that I've done since about 1997. Um, the first body of work is called Enlightened Nonsense, and it it, uh, it was a very important work for me. It is ten short performance films. Um, the It was when I... Enlightened Nonsense was really the beginning of a process for me that I still engage with, and that is, and it, that is rooted in the notion of self-portraiture, which I'm also still engaged in. Um, the other body of work is called Why Always Instead of Just Sometimes, and it's, again, a series of short works, all self-portraits. Um, so we're going to see work from those two central pieces, and I... I I'm glad that they're here because I feel like they are the best representations of my, my interest as an artist and, and they reflect very much my interest in process and experimentation. Um, I'm very interested in this idea of a self-presentational discourse which is different from something that's autobiographical. So the self-portraits really aren't necessarily about my life and the reflection that's involved in looking at one's life sort of from now backwards, but this idea of being in the present tense and this idea of kind of letting the body speak from its moment. Um, I'm also very interested in this idea of uh, the psychosomatic and have, uh, I guess, located my work over the last decade or so in between things as much as possible. So you'll notice in the pieces that are all very physical, this idea of comfort and trauma sort of positioned together, um, as well as this idea of self-liberation and self-annihilation. Um, I do a lot of, I incorporate a lot of domestic spaces and objects. I try to keep the framework for the uh, performances very simple so that the gesture and the action can be seen in, in their greatest detail. Um, but in doing that, by employing the domestic, I, I kind of trouble that sort of the everyday, the trauma of the everyday, the things that are uh, difficult in the details. Um, I'm interested in a lot of historical art, but also, you know, in particular, I'm, I'm grounded in the history of performance art, in conceptual art, and in early feminist uh, experimental film and video. Um, a lot of what I'm influenced by there includes this idea of real time. So even though the works aren't really durational, they don't really, not, I mean, there are exceptions certainly, but they don't go on, you know, and you made videotapes in the 70s, you made work, you performed for the cameras until the tape ran out um, because editing didn't really play a role. Um, 
And in that, I'm interested in this idea of trying to keep things intact. So even though I work in a f kind of fragmentary way, I like to keep, like to keep them intact. Um, and I'm interested in gesture and the body as both as kind of a subject and an object. The, um, the, the mention of experimentation, I think, is a place where we can actually also talk a little bit. You know, the role of experimentation in our thinking about things um, outside the box, so to speak, as a kind of a creative process. Um, so my work isn't really, it's not conventional. It's not master narrative driven. I don't use the tools of, of conventional cinema. Um, it's very much, it's very much a, a direct move away from those kinds of industries. And it's expressly personal. And it's political. And it's emotional. So um, maybe that's a good place to stop um, the description of, of what you're about to see and maybe let you see it. I was just going to add that, that your focus on the day-to-day -day and the small details of life is precisely what we do as psychotherapists as well. You know, the notion that the, this is all grist for the, me uh, for the mill mm -hmm. in terms of, of creating yeah. meaning. Well, and it, it's... Um, you asked me if we could talk about this, and I haven't stopped thinking about it, so I might as well just say it now. Um, you asked me if I'd be comfortable talking about the years that I spent in psychoanalysis. And um, it is important to note that when you three picked work um, from, you know, it's like almost 30 pieces that you had to choose from, you picked the very first piece I made after starting psychoanalysis in order to find my practice again. So, Your artistic practice. Yeah. Because it, you know, there are those relationships, so. Okay, so shall we move into the, yeah. the videos? So Deirdre has asked us to explain our choices of, of the films that, that we've seen. And as she mentioned, these are chronological in, in her work. And so the, the two shrinks as curators come first, uh, followed by the curator as curator, and then the artist as, as creator. But, but as it happens, the, the film that, that really spoke to me was the first, which was called Fall. And, and I think that, that you know, biblical references aside, that, that it really is a, a, me, a metaphor for, for living, that, that we keep falling, we, we keep getting up, you know, we fall into sleep, we fall into entropy, and I liked very much that the film was, was black and white and silent and that your falling occurred in a natural setting with, with the wheat blowing. And I, I particularly liked the way you sort of gave yourself to the ground, you know, that, that, that the falling was, was complete. And um, so those are just some initial thoughts. Uh, so I guess I chose worry because I was going to choose fall and then I was going to choose <laughs> Jillian's and I was the last one to choose so I had to pick one. So I like the worry um, because I guess it spoke to me as a, as a shrink because we do the worry all the time, right? And we're with it and I guess I do it in my own life and there's something about the mindfulness training and the attempt to work with that and also to be able to disengage from it, uh, to get freedom from it. That is uh, that's interesting to me. There's also some, something compelling about kind of wondering what's in that cute little blonde mind, not at 38 but at eight. Mm. Yeah. 
And the repetition. And the repetition of it. The looping of, of, yeah. Yeah. yeah, or 47, right? So every time I see that, I'm like, should I change it? Because I haven't been 38 for 10 years. <laughs> Jillian? I'll use this mic. Um, mine just stuck in my head once I, once I saw it. I love it, and I loved seeing it again. And to me, it just resonated for some reason. It's this whole idea of pushing the limits. And we tend to think of big, grand things, just, but, but change can be just something really small, just really changing your way of thinking. And um, I love the ridiculousness of it. And I think so much of, well, sometimes working at the AGO, you see a lot of ridiculousness. Oh dear, are any of the bosses still here? They've probably gone home. Just that, that I love the cat at the end. I just love, the, I don't know, just, it's so layered in its meaning, and of course it is layered. It's so anti-grand. You're doing something very humble, but it's huge at the same time. I don't know if I'm making any sense. And I'm an educator and a nurse, by the way. Once you're trained as a nurse, you're always a nurse. So I want to claim my medical status as well. So I just love it. And I think I could watch it 10 more times and keep getting meaning from it. Well, and I appreciate your thoughts on the work very much. And um, yeah, I mean, it wasn't so much. I mean, I was, I'm mostly just curious to know where you found, where you each found kind of a, based on your own interests from a medical perspective or from a, a kind of a healing community, what, what your point of entry into the work was. And, and because I think in that reveals one of the, these in-between spaces, these cracks that, that we're looking for where, you know, a lot of our most innovative thinking takes place between, you know, art and science or art and medicine or, you know. Uh, so, I mean, I, I was very, I thought your choices were, were really compelling and I, I added Pond at the end uh, because it is one of the most recent works. Um, but I also think from that sort of self as subject position, the work really evolves throughout the course of what was selected. So Fall was very much my first self-portrait, very much preoccupied with fantasies of my own demise and, you know, the, uh, a lot of uh, sort of... I wasn't a teenager, but I'll call it teenage angst. That sort of... A lot of the troubled troubled uh, times that you experience and it was it's very much based on the whole series is very much based on dreams and you know uh, there's a lot of repetition the uh, second piece worry is a is a super eight movie that my parents shot and you know clearly I failed to see the the joy of the Christmas season um, but the um, you know I think that is very much about how um, you know, how we reconcile ourselves as adults by looking at uh, our lives as children and our relationships um, to the people around us, family in particular. Um, Beyond the Usual Limits Part 1 is very much a piece that I think has everything to do with sexuality, but, but also um, the domestic. And that cat, by the way, is still alive. She's 20, and um, and uh, still on the bed. Uh, and then, last but not least, I think that pond has the you know refers very much to our mortality and our the kind of the reciprocal relationships between the human body, 
and the natural landscape, but also this idea of a kind of a, uh, you know, uh, decay and things that uh, we start to s- sort of ponder before we get old, but older, but, you know, that, that at some point you, you start to reconcile that parts of you um, start to become sites for uh, a return. I like very much the way you refer to the cracks of our experience, the, these luminal spaces that are neither one thing or the other. So there's consciousness and then there's the body, but there's also something in between, And I think, in these, these images. And I wonder if this wouldn't be a good time just to get some comments from the audience about uh, what you've seen and, and how you read these films, what you've, how you've interpreted them. Um, Thanks, I really enjoyed the films. I was wondering if you could show the uh, bed one, but in reverse, it would look a bit like a breech pregnancy, <laughs> feet coming out. And Anyway, uh, so going in kind of looks like you're going back into the womb versus the, I guess I like the contrast, starting of life, the worry in childhood, and then falling, like death. Thanks. Yeah, I'll send you, the, I'll send you a copy in reverse. <laughs> no problem. Bunch of questions. Yeah. Where are you pointing me? Um, Do you want to just maybe sweep that away, Jillian? There's someone there, and then just. I just. uh, uh, You want to go that way? Hi. So I, I loved the thing with the with the bed. I loved the fact it was a bed that you couldn't get under. The only way you could sort of go under that bed is to go between the bed. I was just thinking of all the days in my own life that I'd like to be under the bed, actually, but that wasn't, wouldn't be possible with that bed, so you just kind of made a really good solution to that by just sort of getting in between the bed. And then the cat, for me, it was just like, cats are always just relaxed. They don't seem to have that, you know, like they're, they're just... They don't know it was, what's it was going like, on. You, you know, it, it, was like a, it was like almost like counterpuntal or something, you know, emotionally. <laughs> what it aroused in me, and then the cat just walking in like, what's the problem? <laughs> and I loved the space. I loved the domestic space. I loved the picture on the, the wall in the bedroom and, the, and sort of the, all the layering of the print, the way the bed was sort of a garden in a way, and it was, so it was like you were going into the ground under the garden. That was kind of neat. So, um, thank you for those. They're fascinating. I, the, the first one, Falling, I, I was left feeling like it's amazing that any of us want to stand up, or that we can actually stand up, because it looked so seductive. By the time we were finished watching that film, it was like, I just want to fall down. It looked so, like so much fun, but it's also a kind of seductive giving in, giving over, that we don't really get to do, right? So standing up seemed to be the harder work when I was watching it. And the worry was fascinating because I kept on, I think, I think it was the labeling that um, cued me. First of all, I thought, oh, it, yeah, oh, isn't that interesting? A, a Christmas picture of something. And then worry comes up and you realize, oh, this is, there's a whole other affect that is made available. And I wasn't sure, everybody looked worried. 
everybody looked worried. I mean, I don't know who, I don't know if you, if you, where you were, but the little girl turning around constantly was, I got more and more agitated as I watched it. And the repetition and the kind of energy of the shots were very provocative. And I do have a question, which is that something came out of one of the earlier things that you said this evening, which had to do with editing. Right? Editing. It's fascinating. It's a historical thing. In the 70s, people didn't actually have the same notion of editing or changing or shaping what it was they were seeing. And I'm wondering how that comes into these films that you were doing. Yeah, and I, th I think, uh, you know, everyone's bringing up... Um, I mean, everyone's talking about sites of tension in the work. Um, so, and it's related to this idea of mindfulness and how we balance anxiety and calm and, you know, how we kind of, uh, how the work sort of deals with this te the tension of life, um, I think, is really in the moment. So, with the bed, you know, I called the, I called the Sealy Posturepedic mattress people to find out how heavy a, the mattress would be. <laughs> And I only did it twice. And the second time it looked rehearsed. So the first, really the first time I did it is what you see. So, you know, I try, not, I try to create a scenario that will produce attention to talk about this, this kind of these stresses. But I, and, I, and so I don't dilute that by reorganizing the image. I don't try to make it into a story. I feel like you know, the tension is enough and it's where I, what I'm interested in and so I don't, I don't need to, to edit it in the same way. I mean, you know, cine, you know, in filmmaking, you know, editing is very much a, a standard. You know, people just are always like, you know, they shoot a whole bunch of stuff and then they chop it all up and they kind of make a narrative. Um, you know, my interest is much more in the, in the gesture and in the immediateness of the the work and of the body is immaterial. Like, what can it do? What can't it do? And all the work show what it can shows shows you what it can do uh, simultaneously with showing you what it can't. So uh, I try to keep the 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 action intact. Maybe we'll take one more comment and then we'll engage the dialogue further. There was a hand. You should have a, a microphone if you can hang on one second. Is somebody there? Here she comes. So with that idea in mind, with Pond, I love how beautiful and calm the green water is. With the fish coming to the surface as they get interested in the bread, did you, how many times had you done that one? That's a one, that's a one hit wonder. Oh, it's, that's great. Then. Yeah, that's it. terrifying actually. I try, you know, like, it's not, it's not true that everything I do starts with something I'm afraid of, but everything I do starts with something I'm afraid of. <laughs> I mean, I have an art practice, so there's a construction there. There's already an architecture, but, you know, even if it's, it's something simple, like I cannot stand, uh, like, a ventricular surface, you know, like that 3D thing, or thread. Like, I've got all these things I don't... I'm very particular. And so... You know, I don't like to be in confined spaces. And so doing the performance with the mattress and the box spring was actually quite 
took a lot of nerve for me. Uh, those, that fish scene thing was really hard for me to do. So, um, yeah, I feel like uh, I don't want to have to do things that are hard more than once. So it strikes me as we sort of continue the discussion that the work of the artist and indeed the work of the psychotherapist and consultant is uh, to show up in the face of, of uncertainty and ambiguity, really not knowing what's going to happen next with the transplant, not knowing what's going to happen next with the idea that sort of, you know, the, the germ of, of, of the piece of, of artwork. Um, what role does mindfulness play in, in both of your processes in the, in the work that you do? And if you'd like to provide sort of a, a working definition of mindfulness um, as you see it. Well, um, I mean, I always think about it of, of trying to be in the present moment, you know, without judgment. But it was interesting because it was even more so seeing it on the big screen. They evoke anxiety in me. And, you know, so it's, it's really interesting of just trying to feel the anxiety and be with it and not um, be taken away by it. Mm -hmm. So standing in the face of it. Um, well, you know, actually, I really, I, I want you to um, talk a little bit more about mindfulness because I feel like, um, I feel like I might intuitively know how it works, but I feel like... Um, yeah, I feel like I, I want you to talk a little bit more about, like, especially with this idea of transplantation and, and the mind-body split and how we kind of survive certain things through this, this kind of bringing the two together. Um, yeah, do you know what I mean? Kind of, sort of? Yeah, well, I, mean, I think it's... it's um, I think what's so interesting is that in some ways, I mean, we all have the experience of mindfulness. Uh, unfortunately, we have much more the experience of mindlessness, right? Because we get drawn off and then we go off. Um, and so but it, it's so interesting to me because I think there's so many opportunities in the moment to just settle in and to know, you know, what's happening in my body, what's happening in my thoughts, what's happening in my emotions, and then find a stance of working with them. And so... Uh, and, and it really is only in this moment that any of us have to work with anything. And how do we do that and how do we drop down into this moment? And so there's almost like this sort of, um, I think, fetishization now around, you know, that you have to go and you, you have to go and take these classes and it's all very complicated. And, you know, I think for some people that really is very helpful because some people really do need the help uh, to start with it. But it's also, it's just of just being, kind of being in the moment and being able to drop down into it. I was feeling very agitated. I had had this, like, glorious day planned for today that, of course, then all went, you know, got tipped upside down. So as I was rushing to get here, I saw on the street just the most extraordinary display of different colored cabbages all potted, and I thought, I just have to stop and, like, be with this for, you know, 30 seconds. Because it's like, yeah, it's like, wow. So something you mentioned was um, about being fully present and not judging which I think is so difficult for, for all of us, including artists, because I think um, the artists that I know and that I've worked with have quite a strong inner critic. Um, and I'm also interested in the notion of, of how you work through being stuck, for example. 
you know, if, if in your process when you're stuck. And, and actually, both of your processes, when you're stuck with a patient or when you're stuck with a, with a piece of work. Yeah, I mean, uh, I would argue that uh, I'm, I, I create things about being stuck, and being stuck is where I'm most comfortable. Mm. It's, um, you know... Uh, you know, I really resist these ideas of, um, and I think in any kind of uh, creative vocabulary, it's important to resist that uh, notion that things are to be completed and that they're to be, and that they're fixed, and that um, you know, there's stuck and unstuck and right and wrong, and you know, uh, my interest. I think I have only been able to work in this way because I, I try to stay be, in between things, but also like I try to stay away from worrying about what I'm doing. This idea of self-censorship, when you work personally, autobiographically, when you're you know, in a therapeutic setting and you're you know, kind of unpacking that suitcase, self-censoring yourself is a very dominant thing. You just you try to hide everything. So, you know, I think, I think of being stuck as being the right place to be. Mm-hmm. Stuck trying to sort of navigate or untangle that knot is really the most interesting places for human experience. And that the, you know, the convention of, of trying to normalize is actually where we begin to dysfunction. That's where we begin to kind of fall apart is in trying to aspire to this normalizing, these normalizing notions. So I like to be stuck. I like to be um, unfinished, unformed. I'm interested in the raw. I'm interested in the... I think that grist is the raw stuff, right? So... um, So you resist closure. Well, sure. But see, yeah. when, I, when I listen to you, I don't hear that as stuck. It's, in, it's interesting. Like, I don't hear that as stuck. Because um, I think you, there's, there's an awareness of, of what's happening and of, of being in the moment and of playing with it and of looking at it from different sides that isn't about being stuck. I always think of stuck more as being sort of shut off and not... Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, and, then, and then to be able to come back to the moment helps to unstick you. Mm-hmm. Or at least helps to unstick me. Well, and closure will come one day for all of us. You know, like we Final fall. don't rush it, the people. Big closure. Don't yeah. rush closure. <laughs> it's not worth it. We had some other hands. Uh, Robert. Uh, that guy right there, too, has been, she's been. Yeah. Sure. Got one sure. Oh. Well, just, just on that, I think, yeah, stuck is more about not having possibility. And what I hear is a lot more about possibility. Like, stuck is about not having options or not knowing where to go next, whereas what I'm hearing from you is very much about um, the breadth of possibility in the place that you're at and by untangling the not seeing the opportunities. But um, Fall, uh, I think, challenged me the most, um, and, I, and I wanted to ask a question because I think that life is so much about avoiding that, <laughs> avoiding the fall, and I wanted to ask if... Um, for you, how you came to the place where that was possible to trust the fall, to trust where you were going to fall, to trust how you were going to fall, and how you got to that before the project started, and even how that changed during the project, but also how that might have impacted your life after the project was done, 
and for a practitioner, how that might be a healthy or a productive way to work with a patient um, around that specific experience or uh, fear, if that makes any sense. Well, it's very much a two-part question, so maybe we'll do a two-part answer. And I'll just uh, fall was part again. It's a little it's a little difficult to present individual works from larger uh, series, but you know, I I kind of picked a few things that I I would experiment with in front of the camera. The thing that you'll notice the most with with Fall and the other works in that series is that they're all shot by me. Like, I set the camera up and stage these, in this case, these Falls. And it was, um, you know, it was, it was the hardest one to do because I, was, I didn't really understand the, the, that I couldn't really predict what would happen in this, with this setting up this kind of process. So, you know, um, you know, I think Fall is challenging because it's silent. Um, I think that fall is challenging because there's an impact taking place that we that we fear and that we um, try to avoid. But I do think that it really operates in a more metaphorical or symbolic sense. And you know, uh, it's also very open to multiple readings. You know, there's there's the question of failure and the 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 idea of um, you know, how we always fall, as you mentioned. We fall throughout our whole lives. It's really the getting up that's most interesting, which is in this piece is something you don't get to see. So that, you know, the difficulty in the work is that it's all falling and no getting up. And it was the first in that series. And so, you know, arguably it, it, it in itself was a getting up. But you wouldn't necessarily know that. So, and how a practitioner understands those that sort of cyclic um, falling and how it's part of a process of getting up, maybe well, Susan. And I'm thinking that you, as a consultation psychiatrist, are sort of being teleported in in the middle of the fall for people. Yeah, although it's interesting because I was reading it in a, a different way, which may have reflected sort of what's been going on lately, but that, that sort of sense that we can kind of practice the falling and then the practicing the falling we're going to somehow avert disaster or we're going to get ourselves ready to master something that's coming ahead, looming ahead of us that we're uncomfortable with. And yet we, we can't really because the, the moment is the moment. Um, I don't know. Does that make sense? Yeah. Sense to How would you so work a... with some of your patients around that notion of, you know, um, the fall is imminent, right? It could <laughs> yeah, be. the fall is uh, imminent. And how do you? No, I mean, I think it's very hard. I think it's because I think it's so, it's so determined by and so contextualized to the person and their experience and, and the meaning. And then how do you find a way of, uh, being grounded and and witnessing and being present in the moment and and making some sense of it and finding, whatever beauty or awe or kind of, or wonder or that's sacred or um, that's meaningful in that. And, and, I, and putting I think your, your life in the hands of the anesthetist who is putting you off to sleep and the surgeon who's hopefully mm-hmm. inserting the right heart and um, you know, <laughs> yeah, the, the family trying to make sense spot, of this. Yeah. That, that, that's right. Yeah. Thank you. Um, 
My heart is beating because everything I'm hearing is inspiring. And uh, I find that the way where we started, I'm actually a student of the mindfulness program at Toronto General. And that's actually what brought me here is because I Googled uh, Dr. Abby's name for a sister who's looking for help and I found this and I decided to come. But what I'm hearing right now for me personally is all about choice. And I think that's what mindfulness taught me is perspective. Um, and I have a choice in how I can view things within my life. Um, and it can be either negative or it can be positive. And so what I found quite fascinating with what I've seen so far is that Dr. Abby's two pictures, there's two hearts. You know, there's a choice of being an old heart. There's a choice of being a new heart. Um, with the work that you did, in each of those, I could see myself in some way. Um, it was interesting to hear your perspective, where you were coming from. But I think the one that really struck me the most was the last one. Because, again, I saw a choice. I could see that as a... Um, moments in life where I, you know, you feel like the world starts to consume and take advantage and of at some point when you screamed, it's like that's the body saying, stop, I have to stop and I have to set boundaries. Um, the other perspective for me personally was that scene was more about um, at cancer and those fish were just, thankfully those fish were coming to eat that sucker up, you know, so I think that's what's really cool here is that, and it comes back to mindfulness, it's, for me it's about choice, and I can choose to see the good or I can choose to see the bad, and um, for me it's finding the beauty in the beast. So that's what I have to say. Yeah, it's a really, it's a really beautiful way of kind of phrasing some really important things I think around, not just around choice, but around the duality uh, of things and the lack of singularity often in the way that the world is and the way that human human beings uh, navigate their environments. You know, I think we often try to we pretend that things are that there's a a path that's obvious, but it's very much about a kind of a a constant navigation. Uh, uh, between things and you know maybe it's just not the good heart and the maybe not so good heart but uh, where we situate ourselves uh, on that path for sure I think the more I think about the pond the more it becomes an inspired choice for tonight because to me it's like a perfect metaphor for mindfulness and how difficult it is to remain in the present and mindful to me, that food is, uh, is trying to be mindful. The food is trying to be a bread delivery system to the fish. And it's trying to remain in the present, not disturbing the fish and not being disturbed by the fish. And when you pull your food out, it, that's the, the stimulus from outside that interrupts your mindful moment and prevents you from existing mindfully throughout the day. You know, and it's, I think it's just such a wonderful metaphor when, when I think about it now. I don't think you could have uh, chosen a better work for that. Well, and that's interesting because it's, it's mindful, being mindful in a context, being mindful in relationship to your setting, that it's not a removal of the self, it's actually an engagement of the self. 
really came to me by the end of by the by the end of the um, the movies was it very much for me was about play that that, that that's it's all in all of in all of them okay in all of them um, I had a sense it's that's how children work things out they don't think about it they experience it. Um, and in each one, there was, it was exper experiencing big and difficult things. And that's the way children do it. And I think I use the arts in therapy uh, when I work. And I think you have that same experience. You know it not by thought, but by actually doing and experiencing. You get to know it at a very different level. Yeah, and the relationship between mindfulness and the present tense and this idea of um, allowing a moment to explain itself without an imposed, you know, or predetermined direction or directive. For, you know, so living experientially, um, you know, sounds like this really kind of exciting thing, but maybe perhaps um, living experientially is, is learning how to take time differently and how to think through um, time and space in a new way. I, I had a question for, for both of you that, that it seems to me that you're at similar points of maturation in your art, in, in the work that you do, and whether you could describe how you feel you've matured in, in the work that you do. <laughs> if Whoa. you like that question if you well, don't you don't have to answer well I don't know that I do <laughs> let Deirdre start on that one I was going to say I haven't matured at all but you know um, that's not true uh, the, I found that my my creative life my art practice the thing that I have dedicated my it's my preoccupation I've done it since I was you know I went right out of high school, right into an art college, and I went, to, you know, I got a, a, a couple of degrees, and I, you know, I struggled to, to make it my life. Um, and there has been a, a maturing, uh, a getting, a, you know, I'm, I've gotten to know my interests better, and, you know, I think we refine over the course of, uh, you know, 20 years of doing something. You kind of refine... Uh, you know, getting back to this idea of seeing, you know, you can, you, you attune your gaze, you uh, immerse yourself more deeply in, you, you know, you allow it to consume you in ways that you, uh, I think, have a hard time doing at the beginning of something. So I feel like, I haven't really matured, but I feel like I've allowed the practice, my art practice, to become my life in ways that I think takes a lot of um, you know, it kind of takes a lot of willing. There's a lot of trust and willingness in that, somehow. Maybe ripening is a better word. I don't know. I don't think I've like ripened or matured. Ripened. I don't know. I sort of still feel very young in my head, even though, you know, that there's a kind of a, a playfulness and ability to engage. I mean, probably I'm a little wiser. I certainly think it's funny what our new chair of the Department of Psychiatry had gone out. Uh, for lunch with him, he said, uh, you're interested in this mindfulness stuff, eh? And I said, yeah, and finding it really helpful. And he said, well, you know, I thought it wasn't, uh, I wasn't too sure about it, but he said, it's really calmed you down. <laughs> and, you know, so I, so, so I don't have that kind of a self-reflective capacity to see how it's worked, but I think other people say so. 
What about the notion? It, yeah, sorry. Well, no, but I, I was going to say it's, it's interesting because, you know, being with the students, uh, like I got, I was telling them I had this wild day. So I got held up and being with sort of these very young students and seeing in one way that I have, um, I do think I have ripened and matured probably in my ability to just be planted and present and here. Um, but in this other way, I feel... I mean, what's so wonderful about the work I do is that it's, it's dealing with, you know, people and everybody's got different lives and different stories and different minds and different bodies and there's always a unique combination. So it never feels, it never feels old. It's just, uh, just, it's always like, whoa, what excitement is there going to be today? Yeah, you know, it, it's, uh, we were talking earlier about witnessing suffering as, as the work of physicians and the work of, of artists and I'm interested in in um, how one maintains compassion over many years in this work. Because what we hear a lot about healthcare is that there's a sort of a hardening, kind of a sclerosis of, of uh, physician response and so forth. So I think compassion is very interesting to, to reflect on. And I'm reminded of the work of Lucien Freud, whom I, whom I love. But um, I, I always felt that, that towards the end there was there was more of a gentleness and a compassion for the subjects. Uh, that was my reading of kind of his evolution. But, but anyway, this notion of maintaining compassion as a witness to, to suffering. Um. Well, it's, it's very interesting. That's one area where I think mindfulness is extraordinarily helpfully, helpful to people because if you can kind of drop down into the moment and know that it's really only this moment that you have to, to work with and then this moment and then this moment, uh, it makes it makes it so much easier to do. There's a great saying from the Tao about how life has 10,000 sorrows and 10,000 pleasures. And I think mindfulness also helps you to turn up for the, you know, the, the sorrows are right in your face, but I think those little moments of pleasure are just sprinkled throughout the day, but if we aren't able to tune into them, then, then we don't have the sort of the buffering and the help that they, they bring to us. And so it's been very interesting, actually, a group in Rochester are now really looking at if, if they can use a combination of some mindfulness um, approaches and some uh, kind of narrative therapy to help burnt-out physicians. Mm. Uh, and it's really interesting. They published a, a paper from their first um, series of workshops and, and actually it made it into the Journal of the American Medical Association, which you know, has a very high impact, it well, has a very high, very prestigious, high yes. impact factor very journal. very resistant to this kind of thing. And actually. very resistant to this yeah. kind of thing. Yeah. Like, I think when they came in, they would have thought, oh, well, this bullshit, let's get rid of it. But, you know, they didn't, and they, and they published it. And so I think that this really, I think one of the things I'm very excited about, and Sarah Greenwood, who I um, work with in the nursing arm, uh, runs the MBSR group as well, we're very interested in looking at how we can bring this, you know, onto hospital row. Uh, f for healthcare practitioners, because I think it's a very potent way of grounding ourselves and then working uh, working with suffering. How, how do you think of compassion in your work, or do you think of it in that way? Um, you know, I've never really used the word in my own creative capacity or my vocabulary, but. Um, suffering certainly, and so I guess it becomes a question of like a, what maybe latent or uh, hidden compassion for 
you know, uh, the experience, the, the difficult experiences of human beings. Like, I, I'm a very, I'm a deep feeler, you know. I can't even watch people eat by themselves. I'm like, that's so terrible. <laughs> They're alone. But, you know, I really, I feel like there's, um, there's an engagement uh, with, with um, suffering that I'm quite capable of, of uh, enduring, so to speak. But uh, I haven't really thought of the other side of that coin and the way that suffering and, and um, compassion are intrinsically linked. You know, I mean... Or can be. Yeah. Well, they're, I mean, for me they are because it feels like a, from an outside perspective, you know, like you, you know, to, to, to be able to look at and examine or to participate in something difficult or the suffering of, of someone, um, you bring this compassion, but you also bring your own suffering, mm-hmm. you know, in order to, trans, to, 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 to engage in the transference of the moment, you know. When you're working, you know, with yourself as autobiographical subject and object, um, how will I phrase this? How, how do you know that you've moved from sort of a notion of, of kind of a self-therapy into the exigencies of craft? Um... Do you mean art? Mm-hmm. Mm. <laughs> yeah, I mean, as act, as yeah, process. yeah. I mean, my interest, my interest was always in an art practice, and I was attached and compelled to to an art, to participate in an art practice for all sorts of reasons that had nothing to do with art making initially. You know, it was the fact of it was the capacity that I was I was interested in my own capacity to make things. Uh, I was interested in non-traditional things. I was interested in resistance. And so, you know, I was gravitating towards the process of, of, and the creative processes and the creative disciplines before I ever found myself making something that I could look at and say, this is what I want to make. And this is, this is an area, a thematic, a space, a, a, a series of ideas that I can spend my life working on. But like any other area of expertise or specialization, you know, eventually, you, you know, you get three or four things that work together. You get your subject matter and the things that are interesting to you. You get your modes, you know, your modes of production, the way of working, and the material, the things that you need, the tools that you need. The, you know, getting those three things to come together took me 25 years, you know. So ultimately, I think... Uh, you know, moving from uh, moving into the idea of it being art, um, I don't know. I guess I'm just trying to suggest that uh, it took me a long time to move between those two things, to start with the desire and the interest in the subject into what I felt was really uh, an art practice and, a, and, you know, work that I felt contained all of those elements. Did you want to say something? There's like a bunch of questions yeah, we too. Can move into questions as well. You've had your hand up, you poor thing, for like two hours. And then you, <laughs> and you, and you. Okay. Here. Gal right here. Um, I, uh, when I saw the first 
um, one fall. I was thinking how you mentioned that it was uh, right after you started psychoanalysis. So I was thinking how um, uh, it's, um, and you had the worried look on your face at first and then the falling happened. But the good thing about the falling is kind of like relief because now you can't go any lower and you've hit rock bottom. So it was like, um, you know, psychoanalysis is like probably like really difficult, but at least you are at rock bottom, you can't go lower, and, and you're trying to, so it's kind of like the good stuck, you're just sorting through and starting, so, and then my um, my favorite one was worry, um, and I, I, I um, it really moved me how uh, such repetition, um, and just so anxiety provoking, and just full of anxiety, and worry, and um, just like full of it, and uh, uh, um, and the constant repetition um, and how, uh, you know, um, it kind of made me think of, you know, um, the worry, the worry, the worry, and doing the same thing over and over and over. And um, the definition of uh, um, psych, uh, psychosis or crazy is thinking that you're going to get a different result this time, but you just keep doing it over and over and over. So that really moved me. Well, and I was, you know, I was, I was introduced to Lacan, and I was like, it's okay. It's okay. Someone wrote a big book about all of these things, and, you know, like, I felt like psychoanalysis gave me permission to lie, fall down and stay down for 10 years, you know, to just go to ground, and I think, uh, you know, the same cyclic thing that happens, the, the cyclic thing that happens in worry was really what brought me to psychoanalysis in the first place. So, you know, that you can worry so much that you worry you're going to die only makes you more worried that you're going to die. And, you know, that, that was the sort of the feedback loop that I had found myself in, uh, you know, with lots of panic and anxiety. So, you know, what brought me to analysis really was what you see embedded in worry. And fall was, I guess, you know, as your observation um, illuminates, was my first break from that loop. Yes. Thank you very much for your movie, and uh, uh, which inspired me f uh, from three questions. The first question is, um, all, the, all of the movie uh, bring me uh, the notion of interaction. And the first two movies, uh, I feel that the um, it's about the interaction between body and mind. For the full one, I really um, feel how mind uh, interact with body badly because when people fall down, they, their mind try to protect the body and the body kind of against their mind. And I feel there's um, a conflict between body and mind. And the second one, the worry, I found that um, the body um, the mind controlled the body badly. They, they controlled the body over and over again. So, uh, and the third one, the fourth one, I feel it's like um, interaction between body and space and also interaction between body and body. So this kind of inter um, interaction made, made me think about how it can help us uh, better understand the interactions among body, mind, and space. And the second question, um, I feel I bring the um, I found there's differences between the Eastern philosophy of body 
and the Western medicine of the body. For the Western one, body always treated um, has been treated as a container of the mind. But for Eastern one, uh, we always treat the body and the mind as a holistic mm. system. So um, how different notion and different philosophy of the body-mind relation helps us to better understanding uh, the mindfulness and uh, uh, help people to really feel their body. And the third question I bring is about learning, because people usually they uh, learn from their mind, they learn language, they learn knowledge, or from their mind, they, they seldom learn uh, knowledge from their body. So how should we teach people to learn their body rather than from their mind? Thank you. I was going to say, I think that that's a whole big uh, part of the uh, of mindfulness is helping people to come back into their bodies. John Kabat-Zinn always talks about the, um, uh, you know, Mr. Duffy who, from the James Joyce novels, Mr. Duffy who lived a short distance from his body. You know, and I think a lot of us live a short distance from our body and how we can come back into our bodies and then hear what our bodies are telling us and see the, the body uh, traces of emotion and, you know, bring more wisdom to what's happening in the moment. And so it's no accident that, that mindfulness is sort of a secular uh, derivative of Buddhist meditation, of an Eastern philosophy, which does bring those two things together. And, uh, yeah. yeah, and your point about interaction, I mean, your, the, your, your observations were very well considered, and I thought were really questions. I mean, you, you've, you've identified some really key parts to this question of mindfulness and the mind-body and the paradigms there and thresholds there that we are constantly trying to reconcile. And uh, the idea of interaction, I think, is very... Uh, it, it, those interactions allow the body to have its own language, for that language to be heard. And even though you can't know it, um, but I rarely... There's rarely language in the work. Most of the work has either... Sometimes it has text, but almost, uh, almost never do I speak because I, be, I really believe that the, the thing that we cannot hear anymore in the din and, and glut of all that noise and image is the body. We don't allow it to speak. We don't listen to it. We can't hear it. So I feel very connected to this idea or of progressing this idea of returning to the body uh, as a language and 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 uh, trying to pay more attention to the things that it can tell us about uh, our mind, I guess, our thoughts, feelings, etc. Um, I, I really appreciate your comment just that now. That's something that over the last number of years I've been learning <coughs> a lot about and particularly over this last year, a year ago I was diagnosed with pulmonary fibrosis and I'm told that the only real treatment for that is a lung transplant. Um, so I've been doing a lot of uh, searching over the last year um, and coming to terms with, with this and, and looking at ways of... of uh, continuing to live my life with this new information. I took um, Susan's mindfulness-based stress reduction course in January and had done some meditation and mindfulness prior to that. Um, 
in the the course of uh, the eight weeks, um, I experienced a lot of really wonderful moments with my breath and uh, becoming aware and just being able to be with my breath in a less distressed way. And then shortly after the course, I, I tell people I fell off the mindfulness wagon <laughs> because I started to have more trouble breathing. I lost some, some lung function. And uh, the last thing I wanted to do was pay attention to my breath because I was so aware of my breath all the time anyway, and that, we, and that was so distressing. But by doing exactly what you're suggesting, listening to my body, paying attention, I let that be okay. Rather than forcing the mindfulness meditation on myself, I allowed myself to fall off that wagon and, uh, and, and just go with, with where my body was asking me to go. And as a result, I uh, ended up coming back to more mindfulness practices and art making and writing, um, which were things that I had done anyway, but in the course of losing uh, more and more oxygen, I had less and less access to the creative parts of me and the ability to express myself and, and even to think clearly. So it's been a real journey, uh, and the tools of mindfulness have really helped that. And but but the essential an essential part of the mindfulness is what you're you you know you've just spoken about is, is listening to the body and following its cues, following its language, and uh, and allowing it to be the the voice. Yeah, and and you know I think very uh, I think it's very very difficult to do. I mean, it's very I think it might be the hardest thing that it is that. We have to figure out how to do. Well, and as you it say, is. when your body's reminding of you, think, uh, you of things that you, you don't want to be reminded of all the time, that's the challenge. Yeah. No, and I, think, and I think it's doing that a lot of the time, which is why we don't listen to it. Yes. Right? Because if we listen to what it was telling us about our jobs or our relationships or, our, uh, you know, the real, some of the difficult realities that we're facing, we might have to do something different. Oh, all right, I'm getting the cue from Jillian that, that we're meant to, to wrap up. But we, we wanted to thank you very much for, for coming. And uh, thank you so much, Susan and, and, and Deirdre and Jillian, uh, for a wonderful evening. And with more to come, as we say, there'll be plagues, there'll be plastic surgery, there'll be gender, there'll be all kinds of dialogues coming in the months to come. So stay tuned. And I would like to thank all three of you, too. I have to say it feels so right to have these sorts of conversations here. We're always, you know, the Art Gallery of Ontario wants to be relevant. You know what? We want art to be relevant. I'm spotting Brian Hodges in the audience over there, and he was so much part of the beginning of these conversations between... We, we just got together and said, well, what can we do? Where can we go? And this feels to me like the beginning of some more marvelous conversations. We'd love your ideas, by the way. We do have another program, and that is for people with, uh, living with schizophrenia and other forms of mental illness. So we have a program that has been going for a year and a half with them. And you know, any other ideas people have of how we can be relevant and useful? Um, but thank all three of you. Thank you for your work. You know, thank you very much. Thank you for your films. They, they're now in my psyche forever, I think. <laughs> and thank you. That's a good thing.
So. Thank you for listening to this Art Gallery of Ontario podcast. For additional recordings, as well as information on upcoming programming and events, please visit us online at ago.net slash talks.